And with the advent of global artificial intelligence, there was no longer any need for those kinds of freedoms or the market-based economy of the past. For the first time since the original COVID shutdown in the spring of 2020, New York City was finally safe from violence. Now the only problem was inflation. The one thing the AI systems and the crypto dollar hadn't been able to stop yet was the ongoing run on the global financial system. No algorithm had yet figured out how to solve the problem of old America's $50 trillion default. So while John Wilson was finally free of the fear of violence, he now lived in a constant state of financial terror. Every morning, John woke up to discover how much he'd been taxed. And as July 1st was the first day of the third quarter, today's text message was even more important than usual. Every quarter, every citizen's privilege rank was reestablished by the NSA's massive computers, the largest array of AI computers in the world. In the new America, the value of your crypto dollars was set according to your race, your circumstances, the amount of your privilege, and whether you were an essential citizen. The new U.S. digital dollar was guided by the world's most powerful generative artificial intelligence. This AI could adjust the price of everything for every individual in the economy every day. The president promised this would ensure that America would finally be a free and fair society where every citizen would be able to afford what they needed. They said this would end the violence. It would finally create the city on the hill that America had long promised. The AI knew everything about you, knew everything you owned. It knew your racial background going back seven generations. It knew your DNA, knew your IQ, knew your education, knew your family's wealth, knew how attractive you were, and everything else that factored into your value to society. And then every night while you slept, it automatically adjusted your holdings of USDD via the daily tax you paid. And each morning, you'd wake up to discover how much wealth you'd lost overnight, and how much more everything would cost you that day. Worse yet, by secretly changing the algorithms, the government could control the entire society without ever having to explain who would pay for anything. Oddly though, and quite contrary to what the government's economists promised, rather than ending the inflation, the USDD was making it worse, much worse. John Wilson, as one of the most experienced financiers and economists in the country, knew why. He also knew it wouldn't be long before starvation led to food riots and a return to the violence the new system was supposed to cure. Of course, it had started benignly enough. Most people hadn't even really noticed how much money the government printed during the COVID shutdown between 2020 and 2022. That's when the price of milk and eggs, the basic staples, had increased 400%. The Federal Reserve said the inflation was transitory and was based on supply chain problems. Since stocks went up along with the prices of just about everything else, nobody seemed to care. But that was all before the banks failed. That was before anyone understood what printing more than $10 trillion between 2010 and 2022 had done to our currency, our economy, and our entire way of life. Before the connection between inflation the falling value of real wages and the rise in violence had occurred to almost anyone. Everyone should have known what was coming, John did. All the signs of a collapsing society in a civil war were there. A collapse in law and order, soaring violence in the cities, inflation that continued to destroy wages, savings, the middle class, 
and the peaceful American way of life. America is about to end violently. Our economy is dysfunctional. Our cities are plagued by drugs and crime. Our institutions, politicians, and media have been corrupted. And the glue that once held us together, the unifying belief in American exceptionalism, is dead. Replaced by a new dangerous set of ideas that not only defy logic, decades of scientific evidence, and centuries of historical precedence, but have sent us careening towards the abyss. Yet despite the writing on the wall, more and more Americans continue to embrace these radical and dangerous ideologies. They demand special political rights, unearned economic advantages, and claim cultural superiority. They demand total adherence to their worldview, denouncing anyone who opposes their warped reality as an oppressor. And perhaps most sinister of all, instead of seeking to provide for society, they make demands of it, usually based on racial, sexual, and identity politics. Dare to question this? You will be silenced, threatened, or even attacked. And instead of attempting to bring us back together, our political and media elites are doing everything in their power to fan the flames of division. Because they know turning us against each other is the only way to distract us from what's really going on and to cover up the actual cause of our demise. You see, everything that seems to be destroying America Everything we are told is the root cause of our problems. They are all symptoms of a much deeper problem, a disease that lurks in the heart of the American economy. At first, if that sounds dystopian, it was meant to be. Is it real? Could all this happen in the next three years? I don't know. What I do know is this. Take an honest look at your life. Take a look at our planet. Take a look at the people suffering. We have 8 billion people inhabiting this world today. We're told constantly if we vote someone into office, if we buy a product, if we support a particular bank account and credit cards, if we go along with what we're told to do, consume nonstop, everything will be better. Is it? How do people feel the day after Black Friday? They feel better? Did they get dopamine hits? We're living in a very unusual place, a place that I believe is finally bringing all of these realities to the fore. What do I mean? I mean that when something is happening around the world, let's say that in India there is a longer monsoon season, in the Philippines there's a typhoon, in California there are wildfires, in Indiana, Plants are closing down, the jobs being offshored to China or India or South America. The rainforest is shrinking. Drought is now consuming a large portion of it. People who were able to live off the Amazon now cannot. People who once thought that they had enough money to retire realize they don't. People who graduated from college and got good grades and said they learned something Now they find out that, well, that job that was going to be there, it's not. Artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and uh, robotics, all of these are decimating the job market. But do we see any stopping? Are we slowing down? Are we actually having a group of individuals at the national level say, hold on a second, before we create 
something that we're promising will be a better life for all of us, artificial intelligence, shouldn't we ask, what are the likely side effects? So if you have people taking classes in college and the college or university is not saying, you know something, if we're honest about this and we want more than just your tuition and our endowments to grow, then you shouldn't go into these 16 different fields because you're going to have your jobs taken. If you're a graphic artist, if you're, if you're a diagnostician, if you work in, uh, as a writer, if you work as a musician, all of these professions and thousands more are going to be impacted. Why? Because why should we pay you as a, as a lawyer $300 an hour to do case research on a, on a case we have that's going to take you about two weeks to three weeks, and you're going to give us a bill for around $12,000 when artificial intelligence can give us everything we need far more definitively in three minutes for $1,000. And that's where it's going. So we're going to see millions of jobs that simply disappear. But do we seem to care about those people? The answer is no. Do we care about who's programming all the artificial intelligence? No. Do we know them? No. Do we care about the companies and the people behind the companies, the venture capitalists, who are financing artificial intelligence, transhumanism, robotics, the future cities, the 15-minute cities? Again, the answer is no. So again, I ask, what is the likelihood that the people running the world, the people that control BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Berkshire Hathaway, and Fidelity, and J.P. Morgan? What about the corporations that control the media, the 9,000 radio stations, and all the other magazines, newspapers? Do you know what their motives are? No. Do you know who they are? No. And yet they know everything about you. Have you noticed that the government has been spying on us and caught and shown to be illegal? Barack Obama worked with the telephone companies and Clapper, head of the National Security Agency, brought this to our attention. What happened to him for lying before Congress? Perjury? Nothing. What happened about the people who lied about the Hunter Biden laptop, that it was likely uh, Russian disinformation? 51 members of the intelligence community, including multiple heads of the CIA and the National Security Agency, Homeland Security, nothing. So the people that run agencies that have no oversight and no control, and we don't know what they do, these are the people now that we're, when they're caught lying, there's no consequence. What happens when the head of the FBI and the CIA are caught lying? Once again, nothing. So there's no consequence to people in power who do the wrong thing, lie to us, and then walk away with nothing changed in their life but a lot of negativity in ours. Think of COVID. Think of all the people who are dead now, all the people permanently injured, all the people who will die because of the long-term effects of COVID and the spike protein, the self-organizing nanoparticles, filling up our veins with rubber band material that blocks the blood flow and will cause our heart to stop. Anything going to happen to them? No. Fauci? No. Walensky, head of the CDC, who lied? No. It seems that we're in a place right now that is so dystopian that it seems almost unreal. 
Would you have thought five years ago that in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, St. Louis, Atlanta, that shoplifting would not be considered a crime? That people that physically assault and hurt people, that people push people on train tracks and New York City subways, that they would not be held in jail, they'd get out with no bail? The people that rioted and burned down com- entire communities, m- more often than not minority communities like in Minnesota, that there would be no charges brought against them. That last year, $2.4 billion was stolen from small businesses and large businesses. That it's now common for people to follow you home if you have a high-end car and you're coming from a high-end store and then to rob you. Yesterday, they stopped a woman, shot her in the head, and killed her. It's all over the Internet. Will anything likely happen to those people? No. What happens when you call the police and police do not respond because the police department has been decimated in different communities? So there's no police coming. There's no 911 picking up. That's happening. What happens when our politicians are known to lie? and only support the people, the lobbyists, who have told them what to vote for and what not to vote for. The media, that all of them say the same thing at the same time on the same day, all give them those talking points. What kind of media is that? Compliant? Those are not journalists. Those are propagandists. What happens when one credit card you're late on and suddenly all your credit cards simultaneously then go up to 22% interest, yet you weren't late on your other credit cards? What happens when you can't afford a regular loan, so you take out a payday loan, and you find out that you're paying upwards of 500 to 1,000% interest, more than any organized crime figure would ever charge on loan sharking, and that's perfectly legal. What happens when we have privatized prisons, and therefore we fill our prisons to the needs of the state because they're contractually obligated to put people in cells? What happens when the World World Economic Forum brags publicly, Klaus Schwab bragged, that his new world leaders over the last 40 years were groomed by him, and now they're cabinets like Trudeau, he mentions Trudeau, and Argentine's president, previous one, that they were world economic uh, future leaders. They've been indoctrinated into the theme of global governance a new world order. But we heard new world order. For 40 years we heard people talking about the new world order and we thought it was just some nonsense conspiracy theory. No, it's real. Everything that you just saw and heard in that opening clip is real and it's going to get a lot worse. So why haven't we protested? Why haven't the doctors of America protested based on all the lies about COVID and about the vaccines? Why haven't the scientists protested? Why haven't the professors, universities, and the teachers gone on strike to get these arduous and enormous student loans forgiven? But they haven't, not once, anywhere. And they won't. Why won't we protest anything that's important in any mass way? People will protest. Teachers will only protest when it affects their income. And then the police will go on strike if it impacts their retirement. But what about 
looking at the world we live in and seeing that you're connected with this, like it or not, no one cares. We're living in an extremely selfish, self-absorbed time. An entire generation lost to the addiction to being a victim or being so hypersensitive they can't function in a real world with a real conversation. Where professors like Jonathan Haidt says that he will no longer invite guest speakers, nor will he show films, nor will he use humor in his class for fear of offending one of those hypersensitive children. This is the world we live in, where biology is denied, where we're living in a make-believe universe. So what am I doing? Today, I'm going to show you two clips about artificial intelligence, something you should be very concerned about. Because just like 5G, every single ad on television showed you, you got to have 5G or you're not with it. Okay. What didn't they tell you? That there were 10,000 studies. Let me repeat that. 10,000 scientific studies showing you the danger of 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1G and Wi-Fi. No warnings. If you doubt me, go to the longest written article ever in the world on 5G. I published it in Global Research, and Children's Health Defense published it as well. It is 407 pages long, 394 pages of footnotes. That's how many studies there are confirming its danger. You wouldn't know that by anyone in the media. Could they have found what I did? Yes. Would they want to? No. It would jeopardize their position. So now you're told you want to be in a 15-minute city. You want that refrigerator that can tell you what foods to put in it and not. You want to be having a digital currency. You want to be chipped. You want to be chipped in your brain because now we can make your depression and anxiety and your nightmares and your worst dreams disappear. We can put you into an altered state. We can keep you in a theta state, a relaxed state. Well, who wouldn't want that when you got 40, 50, 60 million Americans suffering from anxiety and depression? All they're doing is taking psychiatric drugs that can cause the symptoms to get worse, including suicide or rage, violence. So we're going to sign up for artificial intelligence. Absolutely, sign me up. But what if it means your job? What if it means you're going to lose your job and you thought you had seniority and you did? But now the same people, the vanguards, the State Street, the BlackRock, they control Silicon Valley. They're the big investors. They have unlimited amounts of money, upwards of about $50 trillion between five or six groups alone. And they're unaccountable to anyone. They control the Federal Reserve because they control the banks, 12 regional banks. They control thousands of corporations. They control the media. They control Congress. They control the state legislatures for the last 40 years through the American Legislative Exchange Council, a private consortium that represents about 200 to 300 of the major corporations. So when you see a bill become a law in your state, the people behind it didn't have your interest at heart. So is your life better? Are you living a longer life, a healthier life, a happier life? Are you more financially secure? Is it a safer place? Can you go for a walk in Central Park in the early evening? Can you go on a subway without looking over your shoulder? This is going to be there 
who's mentally ill or just angry? Are you going to be able to apply to a job and the job says, well, you're Caucasian, you, you can't apply, we're not hiring whites? Hmm. Didn't the mayor of Boston just have a, a people of color only party? Is that not racism? Yes, it is. This is where we're at. So I now ask you again, do you trust the people who are programming and controlling artificial intelligence? No. Do you even know them? No. Do you know what their biases are? Because that bias in them is going to go into the programming. No. And what happens when artificial intelligence doesn't need human programming, can create its own, and doesn't like humans? All that we haven't thought about. Any laws or rules to protect us? None. Now the clips. Uh, then, uh, then with that wider intellectual horsepower, they probably are going to be pondering concepts we never understood. And hence, if you follow the same trajectory, they might actually end up having more emotions than we will ever feel. I really want to make this episode super accessible for everybody at all levels in the sort of artificial intelligence I would understanding love that too. journey. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to... I'm going to be an idiot. Even though, you know, okay, very difficult. <laughs> no, because I am an I idiot. I won't so believe you. <laughs> I am an idiot for a lot of the subject matter. So I have a, a base understanding of a lot, a lot of the con concepts, but your experiences provide such a, a more sort of comprehensive understanding of these things. One of the first and most imp important questions to ask is what is artificial intelligence? The word is mm. being thrown around AGI, AI, mm. et cetera, et cetera. In, in simple terms, what is artificial intelligence? So allow me to start by what is intelligence, right? Because again, you know, if we don't know the definition of the basic term, then everything applies. So, so in my definition of intelligence, it's an ability, it starts with an awareness of your surrounding environment through sensors in a human, it's eyes and ears and touch and so on, uh, compounded with uh, an ability to analyze, maybe to... Uh, comprehend to understand temporal uh, impact and time and, uh, you know, past and present, which is part of the surrounding environment, and hopefully uh, make sense of the surrounding environment, maybe make plans for the future of the possible environment, solve problems, and so on. Complex definition, there are a million definitions, but let's call it an awareness to decision cycle, okay? If we accept that intelligence itself is not a physical property, okay, uh, then it doesn't really matter if you produce that intelligence on carbon-based uh, computer structures like us or silicon-based computer structures like the current hardware that we put AI on uh, or quantum-based computer structures in the future. Uh, then intelligence itself has been produced within machines when we've stopped imposing our intelligence on them. Let, let me explain. So as, as a young geek, I coded computers by solving the problem first, then telling the computer how to solve it, right? Artificial intelligence is to go to the computers and say, I have no idea, you figure it out, okay? So we would, uh, uh, you know, the way we teach them, or at least we used to teach them at the very early beginnings, very, very frequently was using three bots. One was called the student and one was called the teacher, right? And the student is the final artificial intelligence that you're trying to teach intelligence to. You would take the student and you would write a piece of random code that says, uh, 
uh, try to detect if this is a, a cup, okay? And uh, then you show it a million pictures and you know the machine would sometimes say, yeah, that's a cup, that's not a cup, that's a cup, that's not a cup. And then you take the best of them, show them to the, to the teacher bot and the teacher bot would say, this one is an idiot. He got it wrong 90% of the time. That one is average. He got it right 50% of the time. This is randomness. But this interesting code here, which could be, by the way, totally random. Huh? This interesting code here got it right 60% of the time. Let's keep that code, send it back to the maker, and the maker would change it a little bit, and we repeat the cycle. Okay? Very interestingly, this is very much the way we taught our children believe it or not, huh? when when your child you know, is playing with a puzzle, he's holding a cylinder in his hand and there are multiple shapes in a, in a wooden board and the child is trying to you know, fit the cylinder, okay? Nobody takes the child and says, hold on, hold on, turn the cylinder to the side, look at the cross section, it will look like a circle, look for a matching uh, uh, you know, shape and put the cylinder through it. That would be old way of computing. The way we would let the child develop intelligence is we would let the child try, okay? Every time, you know, he or she tries to put it within the star shape, it doesn't fit. So, yeah, that's not working. Like, you know, the computer saying this is not a cup, okay? And then eventually it passes through the circle and the child, and we all cheer and say, well done, that's amazing, bravo. And then the child learns, oh, that is good. You know, this shape fits here. Then he takes the next one and she takes the next one and so on. Interestingly, uh, the way we do this hmm, is as humans, by the way, when the child figures out how to pass a cylinder through a circle, you've not built a brain. You've just built one neural network within the child's brain. And then there is another neural network that knows that one plus one is two and a third neural network that knows how to hold a cup and so on. That's what we're building so far. We're building single threaded neural networks you know, ChatGPT is becoming a little closer uh, to a more generalized AI, if you want. Uh, but those single threaded networks are what we used to call artificial, what we still call artificial special intelligence, okay? So it's highly specialized in one thing and one thing only, but doesn't have general intelligence. And the moment that we're all waiting for is a moment that we call AGI, where all of those neuron net, neural networks come together to, to build one brain or several brains that are each uh, massively more intelligent than humans. Your book is called Scary Smart. Yeah. If I think about the that story you said about your time at Google where the machines were learning to pick up those yellow balls, you celebrate that moment because the objective no. is accomplished? No? No, that was the moment of realization. This is when I decided to leave. So so you see, the, the thing is, I know for a fact hmm, uh, that at that most of the people I worked with who are geniuses uh, always wanted to make the world better, okay? Uh, you know, we've just heard of Jeffrey Hinton uh, leaving recently. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton, give, give some context to that. Jeffrey is sort of the grandfather of AI, one of the very, very senior figures of, of, of AI at, uh, at Google. Uh, you know, we, we all believe very strongly that this will make the world better. And it still can, by the way. Hmm? Uh, there is a scenario, uh, possibly uh, a likely scenario, where we live in a utopia, where we really never have to worry again 
where we stop messing up our, our planet because intelligence is not a bad commodity. More intelligence is good. The problems in our planet today are not because of our intelligence. They are because of our limited intelligence. You know, our, our intelligence allows us to build a machine that flies you to Sydney so that you can surf, okay? Our limited intelligence makes that machine burn the planet in the process. So, so we, 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 a little more intelligence is a good thing. Hmm? As long as Marvin, uh, you know, as Marvin Minsky said, uh, I said Mar Marvin Minsky is one of the very initial uh, uh, scientists that coined the term AI. Uh, and when he was interviewed, I think by Ray Kurzweil, which again is a very prominent figure in predicting the future of AI, uh, he he you know he asked him about the threat of AI and Marvin basically said, look you know the it's not about its intelligence it's intelligence it's about that we have no way of making sure that it will have our best interest in mind, okay and and so if more intelligence comes to our world and has our best interest in mind that's the best possible scenario you could ever imagine uh, and it's a likely scenario okay we can affect that scenario. Uh, the problem, of course, is if it doesn't. And, and, and then, you know, the scenario has become quite scary if you think about it. So Scary Smart to me uh, was that moment where I realized not that we are certain to go either way. As a matter of fact, in computer science, we call it a singularity. Nobody really knows which way we will go. Can you describe what the singularity is for someone that doesn't understand the concept? Yeah, so singularity in physics is when uh, when an event horizon sort of, um, um, you know, covers what's behind it to the point where you cannot um, make sure that what's behind it is similar to what you know. So a, a great example of that is the edge of a black hole. So mm -hmm. at the edge of a black hole, uh, uh, we know that our laws of physics apply until that point but we don't know if the laws of physics apply beyond the edge of a black hole because of the immense gravity, right? And so you have no idea what would happen beyond the edge of a black hole. It's you, kind of where your knowledge of the laws stop. Stop, right? And in AI, our singularity is when the human, the machines become significantly smarter than the humans. When you say best interests, you say, the, I think the quote you used is, um, we'll be fine in a world of AI, you know, if, if the AI has our best interests at heart. Yeah. The problem is, China's best interests are not the same as America's best interests. That was my fear. Absolutely. So, so in, you know, in my writing, I write about what I call the three, the three inevitables. At the end of the book, they become the four inevitables. But the third inevitable is bad things will happen, right? If you, if you, if you assume that the machines will be a billion times smarter. The second event inevitable is they will become significantly smarter than us. Let's 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 put this in perspective. Huh? ChatGPT today, if you know, simulate IQ has an IQ of one fifty five. Okay, Einstein is one sixty. Smartest human on the planet is two ten, if I remember correctly, or two oh eight or something like that. Doesn't matter, huh? But we're matching Einstein with a machine that I will tell you openly, AI experts are saying this is just the, tip, the very, very, very top of the tip of the iceberg, right? Uh, uh, you know, ChatGPT4 is 10x smarter than 3.5 in just a matter of months and without many, many changes. Now, that basically means ChatGPT5 could be within a few months, okay? Uh, or GPT in general, the transformers in general, uh, if, if they continue at that pace, 
uh, if it's 10x, then an IQ of 1600. Hmm? Just imagine the difference between the IQ of the dumbest person on the planet in the 70s and the IQ of Einstein. When Einstein attempts to, to explain relativity, the typical response is, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? If something is 10x Einstein, we will have no idea what it's talking about. This is just around the corner. It could be a few months away. Hmm? And when we get to that point, that is a true singularity. True singularity, not yet in the, I mean, when, when we talk about AI, a lot of people fear the existential risk. You know, uh, th those machines will become Skynet and Robocop. And that's not what I fear at all. I mean, those are, probabilities, they could happen, but the immediate risks are so much higher. The immediate risks are three, four years away. Hmm? The, the, the immediate realities of challenges are so much bigger, okay? Let's deal with those first before we talk about them, you know, waging a war on all of us. Hmm? The, 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 let's, let's go back and discuss the, the inevitables. Huh? So when they become, the first inevitable is AI will happen, by the way. It, there is no stopping it, not because of any technological issues, but because of humanity's in, un, inability to trust the other guy. Okay? And we've all seen this. We've seen the open letter, uh, you know, um, championed by like serious heavyweights and the immediate response of uh, Sundar, uh, the, the CEO of Google, which is a wonderful human being, by the way. I respect him tremendously. He's trying his best to do the right thing. He's trying to be responsible, but his response is very open and straightforward. I cannot stop. Why? Because if I stop and others don't, my company goes to hell. Okay? And if, you know, and I don't, I doubt that you can make others stop. You can, maybe you can force uh, uh, Meta, Facebook to, uh, to stop, but then they'll do something in their lab and not tell me, or if you, even if they do stop, uh, then what about that, you know, 14 year old sitting in his uh, garage writing code? So the first the, inevitable, just to clarify, is what is, will it, we stop? AI will not be stopped. Okay. So the okay. second inevitable is? Is they'll be significantly smarter. As much in the book, I predict a billion times smarter than us by 2045. I mean, they're already what? smarter than 99.99% of the population. 100%. Yeah. Uh, ChatGTP4 knows more than any human on planet Earth. Knows yeah, more information. Ab absolutely. In a thousand times more. A okay. thousand times more. By the way, the code of, G of, of a transformer, the T in, in, a, in a GPT is 2,000 lines long. It's not very complex. It's actually not a very intelligent machine. It's simply predicting the next word. Okay. And, and a lot of people don't understand that. You know, ChatGPT as it is today, you know those kids uh, that, uh, you know, if, you, in, if you're in America and you teach your child uh, all of the names of the states and the US presidents and the child would stand and repeat them and you would go like, oh my God, that's a prodigy. Not really, right? It's your parents really trying to make you look like a prodigy by telling you to memorize some crap really. But then when you think about it, hmm, that's what ChatGPT is doing. It's it's the only difference is instead of reading all of the names of the states and all of the names of the presidents, thread trillions and trillions and trillions of pages. Okay, and so it sort of repeats what the best of all humans said. Okay, and then it adds a, a, an incredible bit of intelligence where it can repeat it the same way Shakespeare would have said it. You know those incredible abilities of predicting the exact nuances of the style of 
of Shakespeare so that they can repeat it that way and so on. But still, hmm? you know, when, when I when I write, for example, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm intelligent, but when I write uh, something like, uh, you know, the happiness equation uh, in, in my first book, this was something that's never been written before, right? ChatGPT is not there yet. All of the transformers are not there yet. They will not come up with something that hasn't been there before. They will come up with the best of everything and generatively will build a little bit on top of that. But very soon, they'll come up with things we've never found out, we've never known. But even on that, I wonder if we are a little bit delusioned about what creativity actually is. Creativity, is, as far as I'm concerned, is yeah. like taking a few things that I know and combining them in new and interesting ways. Yeah. And ChatGTP is perfectly capable of like taking 100%. two concepts, merging them together. One of the things I said to ChatGTP was, I said, tell me something that's not been said before that's paradoxical, but true. And it comes up with these wonderful expressions like, as soon as you call off the search, you'll find the thing you're looking for. Like these kind of paradoxical truths. Mm -hmm. And I get, and I then take them and I search them online to see if they've ever been quoted before and they, I can't find them. <laughs> it's interesting. So yeah. it, it, as far but, as creativity but, goes, I'm like, that is creative. That's the algorithm of creativity. I, I, I've been screaming that in the world of AI for a very long time because you always get those people who really just want to be proven right, okay? And so they'll say, oh no, but hold on human ingenuity, they'll never, they'll never yeah, match that. I, like, I, man, please, please, you know, human ingenuity is algorithmic. It it's is. Look at all of the possible solutions you can find to a problem, take out the ones that have been tried before and keep the ones that haven't been tried before. And those are creative solutions. It's, it's an algorithmic way of describing creative is good solution that's never been tried before. You can do that with ChatGPT with a prompt. It's like, and mid-journey yeah. with, with creating imagery. You could say, I want to see Elon Musk in 1944, New York, driving a cab of the time, shot on a Polaroid, expressing various emotions. And you'll get this perfect image of Elon sat in New York in 1944, shot on a Polaroid. And it's, and it's done what an artist would do. It's taken a bunch of references yeah. that the artist has in their mind and merged them together and yeah. created this piece of quote-unquote art. And, and for the first time, we now finally have a glimpse of intelligence hmm, that is actually not ours. Yeah. And so we're kind of, I think the, the initial reaction is to say, that doesn't count. You're hearing it with like, <laughs> no, but it is. Like Drake, they've released two Drake records where they've taken Drake's voice, used sort of AI to synthesize his voice and made these two records, which are bangers. If, mm -hmm. if I, they are great tracks like yeah, i was playing them to my girlfriend i was like yeah. and i kept playing it i went to the shower i kept playing it i know it's not drake but it's as good as drake the only thing and people are like rubbishing it because it wasn't drake i'm like well hmm, or now is it making me feel a certain emotion uh, is my foot bumping mm -hmm. um had you told had, did i not know it wasn't drake what i thought have thought this was an amazing track a hundred percent and we're just at the start of this exponential oh, curve yeah. yes absolutely and 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 i think that's really the third inevitable so the third inevitable is not RoboCup coming back from the future to kill us. We're far away from that, right? Third inevitable is what does life look like when you no longer need Drake? Well, you've kind of hazarded a guess, haven't you? I mean, I was listening to your audiobook last night and at the start of it, you frame 
various outcomes. One of the in both situations were on the beach on an island. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. I don't know how I wrote that, honestly. I mean, but that's I. So I'm reading the book again now because I'm updating it, as you can imagine, with all of the uh, of the uh, of the new stuff. Are you uncomfortable talking about this? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty wild, right? Mustafa Suleiman, the billionaire founder of Google's AI technology. He's played a key role in the development of AI from its first critical steps. In 2020, I moved to work on Google's chatbot. It was the ultimate technology. We can use them to turbocharge our knowledge unlike anything else. Why didn't they release it? We were nervous. We were nervous. Every organization is going to race to get their hands on intelligence. And that's going to be incredibly destructive. This technology can be used to identify cancerous tumors as it can to identify a target on the battlefield. A tiny group of people who wish to cause harm are going to have access to tools that can instantly destabilize our world. That's the challenge, how to stop something that can cause harm or potentially kill. That's where we need containment. Do you think that it is containable? It has to be possible. Why? It must be possible. Why must it be? Because otherwise it contains us. Yet you chose to build a company in this space. Why did you do that? Because I want to design an AI that's on your side. I honestly think that if we succeed, everything is a lot cheaper. It's going to power new forms of transportation, reduce the cost of healthcare. But what if we fail? The really painful answer to that question is that do you ever get sad about it? Yeah, it's intense. Everything that's going on with artificial intelligence now and um, this new wave and all these terms like AGI and I saw another term in your, your, your book called ACI, it's the first time I'd heard that term. How do you feel about it emotionally? If you had to encapsulate how you feel emotionally about what's going on in this moment, how would you do, what words would you use? I would say in the past, it would have been petrified. And I think that over time, as you really think through the consequences and the pros and cons and the trajectory that we're on, you adapt and you understand that actually there is something incredibly inevitable about this trajectory and that we have to wrap our arms around it and guide it and control it as a collective species, as, a, as humanity. And I think the more you realize how much influence we collectively can have over this outcome, the more empowering it is. Because on the face of it, this is really going to be the tool that helps us tackle all the challenges that we're facing as a species, right? We need to fix water desalination. We need to grow food 100x cheaper than we currently do. We need renewable energy to be you know, ubiquitous and everywhere in our lives. We need to adapt to climate change. Everywhere you look, in the next 50 years, we have to do more with less. And there are very, very few proposals, let alone practical solutions for how we get there. Training machines to help us as aides, scientific research partners, inventors, creators, is absolutely essential. And so the upside is phenomenal. It's enormous. But AI isn't just a thing. It's not an inevitable whole. Its form isn't inevitable, right? Its form, the exact way that it manifests and appears in our everyday lives and the way that it's governed and who it's owned by and how it's trained, 
that is a question that is up to us collectively as a species to figure out over the next decade. Because if we don't embrace that challenge, then it happens to us. And that's really what I'm, I have been wrestling with for 15 years of my career is how to intervene in a way that this really does benefit everybody. And those benefits far, far outweigh the potential risks. At what stage were you petrified? So I founded DeepMind in 2010. And you know, over the course of the first few years, our progress was fairly modest. But quite quickly in sort of 2013, as the deep learning revolution began to take off, I could see glimmers of very early versions of AIs learning to do really clever things. So for example, one of our big initial achievements was to teach an AI to play the Atari games. So remember Space Invaders and, and Pong, where you bat a ball from left to right. And we trained this initial AI to purely look at the raw pixels, screen by screen, flickering or moving in front of the AI, and then control the actions up, down, left, right, shoot or not. And it got so good at learning to play this simple game simply through attaching a value between the reward, like it was, it was getting score and taking an action, that it learned some really clever strategies uh, to play the game really well that us games players and humans hadn't really even noticed, or at least people in the office hadn't noticed it. Some professionals did. Um, and that was amazing to me because I was like, wow, this simple system that learns through a set of stimuli plus a reward to take some actions can actually discover mini strategies, clever tricks to play the game well that us humans hadn't occurred to us, right? And that to me is both thrilling because it presents the opportunity to invent new knowledge and advance our civilization. But of course, in the same measure, it's also petrifying. Mm. Was there a particular moment when you were at, you were at DeepMind where you go, where you had that kind of eureka moment, like a day when something happened and, and it caused that, that epiphany, I guess? Was it? Yeah, it, it, it was actually a moment even before 2013 where I remember standing in the office and watching a very early prototype of one of these image recognition, image generation models that um, was trained to generate new handwritten black and white digits. So imagine zero to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, all in different style of handwriting on a tiny grid of like 300 pixels by 300 pixels in black and white. And we were trying to train the AI to generate a new version of one of those digits, a number seven in a new handwriting. Sounds so simplistic today, given the incredible photorealistic images that are being generated, right? Um, and I just remember so clearly, it, it took sort of 10 or 15 seconds and it just resolved. It, the, the number appeared. It went from complete black to like slowly gray. And then suddenly these were like white pixels appeared out of the, the black darkness and it revealed a number seven. And that sounds so simplistic in hindsight, but it was amazing. 
I was like, wow, the model kind of understands the representation of a seven well enough to generate a new example of a number seven, an image of a number seven, you know, and you roll forward 10 years and our predictions were correct. In fact, it was quite predictable in hindsight, the trajectory that we were on. More compute plus vast amounts of data has enabled us within a decade to go from predicting black and white digits, generating new versions of those images, to now generating unbelievable photorealistic, not just images, but videos, novel videos, with a simple natural language instruction or a prompt. What has surprised you? You said you referred to that as predictable, but what has surprised you about what's happened over the last decade? So I think what was predictable to me back then was the generation of images and of audio, um, because the structure of an image is locally contained. So pixels that are near one another create straight lines and edges and corners, and then eventually they create eyebrows and noses and eyes and faces and entire scenes. And I could just intuitively, in a very simplistic way, I could get my head around the fact that, okay, well, we're predicting these number sevens. You can imagine how you then can expand that out to entire images, maybe even to videos, maybe, you know, to audio too. You know, what I said, you know, a couple of seconds ago is connected in phoneme space in the spectrogram. But what was much more surprising to me was that those same methods for generation applied in the space of language. You know, language seems like such a different abstract space of ideas. When I say like the cat sat on the, most people would probably predict mat, right? But it could be table, car, chair, tree. It could be mountain, cloud. I mean, there's a gazillion possible next word predictions. And so the space is so much larger. The ideas are so much more abstract. I just couldn't wrap my intuition around the idea that we would be able to create the incredible large language models that you see today. Your chat GPTs. Chat GPT. Google Bard. The Google's Bard. Inflection, my new company has an AI called Pi, Pi.ai, which stands for personal intelligence. And it's as good as ChatGPT, but much more emotional and empathetic and kind. So it's just super surprising to me that just growing the size of these large language models, as we have done, by 10x every single year for the last 10 years, we've been able to produce this. And that, that, that's just an amazingly large number. If you just kind of pause for a moment to grapple with the numbers here. In 2013, when we trained the Atari AI that I mentioned to you at DeepMind, that used two petaflops of computation. So peta, P-E-T-A, stands for a million billion calculations. A flop is a calculation. So two million billion, right? which is already an insane number of yeah. calculations. Lost me at two. It's <laughs> totally crazy. Yeah, just two of these units that are already really large. Yeah. And every year since then, we've 10x'd the number of calculations that can be done such that today, the biggest language model that we train at Inflection uses 10 billion petaflops. 
So 10 billion, million, billion calculations. I mean, it's just unfathomably large number. And what we've really observed is that scaling these models by 10x every single year produces this magical experience of talking to an AI that feels like you're talking to a human that is super knowledgeable and super smart. There's so much that's happened in public conversation around AI. Um, and there's so many questions that I have. I've, I've been speaking to a few people about artificial intelligence to try and understand it. And I'm, I think where I am right now is I feel quite scared. Um, but when I get scared, I don't get, it's not the type of scared that makes me anxious. It's not like an emotional scared. It's a very logical scared. It's my very logical brain hasn't been able to figure out how the inevitable outcome that I've arrived at, which is that humans become the less dominant species on this planet, um, how that is to be avoided in any way. The first chapter of your book, The Coming Wave, is a, is is a, is titled appropriately to how I feel. Containment is not possible. You, you say in that chapter, the widespread emotional reaction I, I was observing is something I've come to call the pessimism aversion trap. Correct. What is the pessimism aversion trap? Well, so all of us, me included, feel what you just described when you first get to grips with the idea of this new coming wave. It's scary, it's petrifying, it's threatening. Is it going to take my job? Is my daughter or son going to fall in love with it? You know, what does this mean? What does it mean to be human in a world where there's these other human-like things that aren't human? How do I make sense of that? It's super scary. And a lot of people over the last few years, I think things have changed in the last six months, I have to say, but over the last few years, I would say the default reaction has been to avoid the pessimism and the fear, right? To just kind of recoil from it and pretend that it's like either not happening or that it's all going to work out to be rosy. It's going to be fine. We don't have to worry about it. People often say, well, we've always created new jobs. We've never permanently displaced jobs. We've only ever seen new jobs be created. Unemployment is at an all-time low, right? So there's this default optimism bias that we have. And I think it's less about a need for optimism and more about a fear of pe pessimism. And so that trap, particularly in elite circles, means that often we aren't having the tough conversations that we need to have in order to respond to the coming wave. Are you scared in part about having those tough conversations because of how it might be received? Um, not so much anymore. So I've spent most of my career trying to put those tough questions on the policy table, right? I've been raising these questions, the ethics of AI, safety and questions of containment for as long as I can remember with governments and civil societies and all the rest of it. And so I've become used to talking about that. And, you know, I think it's essential that we have the honest conversation because we can't let it happen to us. We have to openly talk about it. Is, I mean, this is a, this is a big, a big question, but as you sit here now, do you think that it is containable? Because I, I, I can't see how. I can't see how it can be contained. Chapter three is the containment problem. 
where you give, a, give the example of how technologies are often invented for good reasons and for certain use cases, like the hammer, you know, which is used, you know, maybe to build something, but it also can be used to kill people. Um, and you say in, in history, we haven't been able to ban a technology ever, really. It has always found a way into society um, because of other societies have an incentive to have it, even if we don't. And then we need we need it like the nuclear bomb, because if they have it, then we don't, then we're at a disadvantage. So are you optimistic? Honestly. I don't think an optimism or a pessimism frame is the right one because the e both are equally biased in ways that I think distract us. As I say in the book, on the face of it, it does look like containment isn't possible. We haven't contained or permanently banned a technology of this type in the past. There are some that we have done, right? So we banned CFCs, for example, because they were producing a hole in the ozone layer. We've banned certain weapons, chemical and biological weapons, for example, or blinding lasers, believe it or not. There are such things as lasers that will instantly blind you. You know, so we have stepped back from the frontier in some cases, but that's largely where there's either cheaper or you know equally effective alternatives that are quickly adopted. In this case, these technologies are omni-use. So the same core technology can be used to identify you know, cancerous tumors in chest X-rays as it can to identify a target on the battlefield for an aerial strike. So that mixed use or omni-use is going to drive the proliferation because there's huge commercial incentives because it's going to deliver a huge benefit and do a lot of good. And that's the challenge that we have to figure out is how to stop something which on the face of it is so good, but at the same time can be used in really bad ways too. Do you think we will? I do think we will. So I think that nation states remain the backbone of our civilization. We have chosen to concentrate power in a single authority, the nation state, and we pay our taxes and we've given the nation state a monopoly over the use of violence. And now the nation state is going to have to update itself quickly to be able to contain this technology because without that kind of essentially oversight, both of those of us who are making it, but also crucially of the open source, then it will proliferate and it will spread. But regulation is still a real tool and we can use it and we must. Have a nice day, everyone.